0: This is Section 31 of Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Newspaper Articles by Mark Twain, Section 31, Territorial Enterprise, February 1868. Territorial Enterprise, February 18th, 1868. Mark Twain's Letters from Washington, number 5. Washington, January 11th, 1868. THE POLITICAL STINKPOTS OPENED. They are opened, and awful is the smell thereof. Millions of politicians have suddenly begun to prate with unprecedented energy, even for their tribe, and they foul all the air with their corrupt and suffocating breath. It is all about reconstruction. The truth is that the more Congress reconstructs, the more the South goes to pieces. But. Congress is in for it now, and goes bravely on, hoping at last to get the Reconstruction Bull where they can hold him. Every morning, after breakfast, Congress passes a brand-new Reconstruction Act. After luncheon they amend it, and put some Constitution in it. When it is time to go to dinner, they repeal it, and get ready to start fresh in the morning. If they keep on stacking up talent on reconstruction, as they have been doing, they will run out of material before they get their great mission accomplished. You see, they started in to build a good, substantial reconstruction house, but there were some sandy places under it which did not look well. They thought maybe they might not be as risky as they looked, however, and concluded to chance them. But it was not a good idea." The house was hardly built before one corner began to sink a little, and they had to jack-screw it up and put in an amendment prop. Then another corner began to sink, and they had to put in a similar prop there. Next the chimney began to lean, and they had to prop that mighty quick with a powerful brace. Right away the kitchen began to cave in, and the gable end to bulge out, and immediately some more jack screws and braces had to be called into use. It is a nice new house, but some part of it lets down every day and has to be fixed till at last we have the curious spectacle of a mansion bright with new paint and dazzling with gilding looking bleary and bloated, limber and leaning and bulging in all directions and with unpainted and unsightly spars and braces, canted against it, and straddling about every which way—an allegorical, elegant gentleman of the first water, and most fashionable attire, drunk as a piper, subjugated, demoralized, and gone in generally, reeling home on crutches enough for six. Such is the new house, and such the efforts made to save it. And, of course, It never rains, but it pours. In the midst of all this vexation, along comes the grand jury—otherwise the Supreme Court—to examine it, and the owners and builders in fancy already hear the disastrous fiat. Gentlemen, she won't do. She will have to come down. There is too much sand and not enough Constitution under her. I am not writing a political article. I am not trying to write a palatable article. I am merely writing the truth, simply photographing a straight-out fact. Thaddeus Stevens and many other prominent Republicans have said all along that the Reconstruction Acts were outside the Constitution. Congress itself has said it. Yet they still go on trying to patch up that old house with that fatal defect in it, instead of wisely pulling it down and doing all over again and doing it right. The defect looked small at first, and Congress seems to have thought that it could not amount to a great deal, and yet, patch and repair and improve as they will, that little defect invariably obtrudes itself again and disarranges everything. It reminds me of a circumstance—that great Claflin House in New York sold forty millions of dollars' worth of goods in the year 1866. I visited their immense establishment in January 67, to see its wonders, and found the head bookkeeper in a sweat. I asked what the matter was. He said that for two terrible days he and his forty-eight sub-bookkeepers had been turning themselves gray with anxiety, chasing a ten-cent piece through a cartload of ledgers there was a discrepancy of ten cents in the cash amount for the year the awful cash amount wouldn't balance i just said indignantly well that is about the smallest piece of business i ever heard of here i'll give you ten cents myself you and claflin go to bed and get some rest but he smiled a green despairing ghastly smile and shook his head he said that wasn't the idea It wasn't the ten cents they cared for, but the terrible truth that that miserable trifle might stand for millions of dollars. Until that defect was hunted out and rectified, they couldn't tell whether they had lost millions or made them. The cash books, he said, must balance. It is just the idea with reconstruction." There is a trifling discrepancy somewhere, and nothing is safe about the building till it shall be rooted out. There is ten cents' worth of Constitution lacking in it somewhere, and there will be no security, no salvation for it till the thing is rectified. There is no use trying to tinker it up. The builders must go straight through the edifice, and never rest till its accounts balance with the cash-book of the Constitution." I wrote that speech for a Democratic member of Congress, but he couldn't pay me anything but whiskey, and so we couldn't trade. I said I would rather confer it on a good Republican newspaper as a fair and honest exhibit of the Democratic side of the most exciting question before the nation, to the end that Republicans might have a chance to read both sides, and thereby better inform themselves. But Congress is worried a decision rendered by the supreme court rendered some time ago seemed plainly to indicate that five of the judges considered the reconstruction acts unconstitutional against three who believed the opposite the famous mcardle case threatens to bring the constitutionality of those acts to a test before the court right away and Congress to-day proposes to do what it can to circumvent the disaffected five, by passing a bill ordaining that the concurrence of six of the judges shall be necessary to constitute a decision in all cases involving constitutional questions. But unhappily Congress did not make the Supreme Court, and doubtless it will transpire that it has about as much jurisdiction over its affairs as it has over the weather." The Court makes its own rules, and is entirely independent of Congress. Its custom is to decide by a majority vote, and if it chooses will no doubt continue to do so. If McCardle gains his case, Negro suffrage and the Reconstruction Acts will be dissipated into thin air for the present. No wonder Congress is troubled it fears that if it can't fix things so as to enable three judges to outvote five it will have to go to work and build that reconstruction house all over again from cellar to roof isn't it a splendid sensation the principal republican papers are growling savagely at congress for getting itself into this scrape by its innocent stupidity republicans both in and outside claim that, though the Reconstruction Acts and the proposed bill to prescribe rules for the judges are a little unconstitutional, they are necessities, the State of the country demands them, that if the rebels were admitted to power they would hang Union men upon any and every pretext, or upon none at all, that to admit them to power, unreconstructed and unrestrained would be to acknowledge that the war for the union was an iniquity a crime general sheridan says he is interested in this business if the war was wrong he thinks he is a particularly bad murderer i suppose he had a chance to be he was in eighty-four battles and had a hand in a good deal of killing he says if he was in the right he would like it if congress would go ahead and so decide it if he was in the wrong and was only a murderer He would like to know that, also. He is satisfied of one thing, that he cannot live under rebel rule, and thinks, from at least a military point of view, that the rebel conquered have no right to dictate to the victors, no right to say under what terms they will come in. Congressmen say that everything that stands in the way must go to the wall, if the Supreme Court obstructs the regeneration of rebeldom, it must go too this would be good enough reasoning possibly but for one thing, the president will veto the bill making rules for the judges and it can hardly be passed over his veto and even if it were the court would simply annul it and then no doubt go on and annul the reconstruction acts by the liberation of mcardle a telegraphic report to-day says that general meade has suspended the governor and treasurer of georgia from office AND THIS HAS CREATED GREAT REJOICING AMONG REPUBLICANS HERE. SO THE POLITICAL cauldron BOILS. LET HER BOIL. IT IS BELIEVED THAT SECRETARY STANTON WILL BE REINSTATED IN THE WAR OFFICE WITHIN A FEW DAYS, WHETHER THE PRESIDENT LIKES IT OR NOT. CONGRESS IS ON ITS METTLE NOW. STANTON, THE PRESIDENT, TREASURY FRAUDS, RECONSTRUCTION. IT HAS A GOOD DEAL OF BUSINESS ON ITS HANDS, BUT IT IS FIGHTING FURIOUSLY AT LAST." Even Wendell Phillips ought to be satisfied now—how the cauldron does boil. Let her boil! Stewart's Speech It is the fashion now to write speeches. Congressman Brooks said at the press banquet last night that the day of eloquence is over in America, killed by newspapers, telegraphs, and phonographers. No man has a chance to carefully write out a speech for publication now, after it has been delivered it is forever too late the shorthanders have got it the telegraph has flashed it to the ends of the earth the daily press has petrified it into print with all its imperfections before the words were cold upon his lips he said that webster and clay could not be orators now their crude extemporaneous efforts would appal them in print and they would fall into the safer new fashion and write cold glittering chastely worded sentences that could warm no listener into enthusiasm when he heard them. Mr. Stewart has written, and written carefully, an elaborate speech upon the mining interests of the Pacific coast. It is by far the best and the ablest effort of the kind that ever has seen the light in this region. If he never does anything else to be proud of while he lives, this ought to be sufficient to satisfy him. It ought to be sufficient to kill him, too for I never knew a man to do his constituents a great service, or do his whole duty by them honestly and well, that they didn't put him on the shelf and send some ass to represent them that was of no use whatever under God Almighty's heaven but to get up and blat about niggers and politics and American flags and other bosh that he didn't know any more about than a bull knows about mathematics. California has shelved Connus, and served him right. He worked too hard for her interests, he was too faithful to his trust, he was too good, and too tireless a servant. Mr. Stewart is the only man that ever stood in either house of Congress, that knows all about mines and mining, knows it from A to Z, knows it in all its needs, in all its possibilities, in all its details." he knows what laws are wanted to nurture and protect and endow it with prosperity and he knows how to frame them he sees into his subject with a surer and clearer vision than any man on this coast it would be safe to say or upon yours either i was satisfied of this before i know it now after reading his speech but it will do this for him it will show his constituents that they have sent a man here who knows his business to a fraction, and exactly the man they need here to keep Congress from eternally impoverishing them by passing absurd laws to cripple mining, and disgust every man engaged in it, and then you will send some brainless idiot here, some quacking numskull, some bladder of wind that some browsing elephant in the inscrutable providence of God, ought to step on and burst that is what you will do if i were in nevada next fall i wouldn't want anything better than to take stump for stuart and narrate it to you can a man put a bill through the congress like stuart's that freed your minds from government ownership and opened the markets of the world for their sale dare a man to do so priceless a service as that for his people and ever hope to see the united states again Not while republics are ungrateful, I reckon, and a clattering tongue with a piece of an idiot hung to it can be found in his place. You are hearing me toot my horn. Mark Twain Territorial Enterprise, February nineteenth, 1868. Mark Twain in New York. Special Correspondence of the Enterprise. Number 6. New York, January 20th. I have run up here every now and then to get rid of the dullness of Washington, but I cannot tarry long, for I have to clear out again to keep from being crazed by the terrible activity of New York. They complain that New York is exceedingly dull now, and so it must be, compared to the bewildering energy it displays in its busiest seasons, but even as it is now, it is able to make provincial brains grow dizzy with its noise and bustle and excitement it is a wonderful city. Two persons died last night of hunger, cold, and exposure. They were people who could get nothing to do, and could not make a living begging. The bodies were displayed at the morgue today, and among the idle spectators was a man who has nothing in life to accomplish but the spending of four hundred thousand dollars a year. I was in a tenement house yesterday which contained two hundred persons, all crowded together in little cramped chambers, where was lack of everything but dirt and rags. There were remnants of hats for window-panes, doors hung by one hinge, fragments of quilts and blankets, bestowed in corners, did duty as beds. There were a few battered pots and pans, but nothing to cook in them, and no fire to do it with, either. There was occasionally a broken chair and part of a table— But as a general thing these rooms were not so sumptuously furnished. There were small ridges of snow on some of the floors. It had blown in through cracks and broken windows. The human occupants were cadaverous and pale, hollow-eyed and savage with hunger, or dumb with a misery that was next of kin to despair. One woman with five children it is proper to call her a woman, I suppose, though she would have averaged very well as rags all through said she washed for a living formerly but she got sick and lost her custom then she peddled apples and oranges until a general financial crisis that prostrated all commerce and broke up many a staunch old firm reduced her to peanuts but trouble still followed her an investment of four dollars at the very top of the market followed immediately by an unusual business depression compelled a sacrifice of the whole venture and she went to protest she retired from commerce a bankrupt she struggled on doing what she could to make a livelihood by begging but she was very nearly discouraged for twenty-four hours she had not eaten she swore to it one of the philanthropists in our party advanced funds enough to set her up in business again there was want and suffering all about us there was a man there a poor decrepit starveling of sixty, who had been the clown in a circus in his palmy days, had been royally tricked out in paint, and brilliant spangles, and ribbons, and gold lace, instead of the gunny sack he wore about his shoulders now, and the shredded lattice work of rags that hung about his legs. He had been the admiration of the schoolboys, had been the man of all men they envied most and most long to be like, but nobody envied him now." "'Nobody admired him. The day of his greatness was over.' He mentioned it with feeling, and sighed when he spoke of it. He told how the audience used to applaud when he capered into the ring and made his bow. He said he was the star of the troupe, and his name alone on the bills was a sufficient guarantee for a full house. He compared himself with the celebrated clowns, Messrs. So-and-so, whom he had not heard of before and pointed out wherein he had been superior to them then he piped out some execrable jokes in the old familiar clownish way i was not aware before that they were so old and told how boisterous the laughter and applause used to be the fact is he had forgotten for the moment that he was a mendicant and imagined himself a clown again in the zenith of his glory he even got so carried away with his happy reminiscences as to attempt his favorite comic song for us but his poor reedy falsetto broke down, and his splendid daydream vanished. He was an unspangled mendicant again. He told how he came down gradually but surely from the dizzy height of his prosperity to be a magic lantern exhibitor, then a doorkeeper, then a Roman soldier in a theater, then a mere soup, afterwards a vendor of cheap soap and ballads, and finally a rag-picker and a searcher after old bones and broken bottles. He was hungry, but he was not thinking of that. He was cold, but he was not thinking of that either. His friends were all gone years ago, and it was plain that he had no home, but none of these things stood first in his mind. All he wanted was to shine once more in the ring, in glittering spangles, and get off some more of those infernal jokes, and hear the blessed music of applause, and then die. But we could not give him an engagement, as we had no circus, and so we left him to his want, his rags, and his dreams. There was a girl in that house, about fourteen years old, who supported her father and mother, and two young sisters by her work. She sold newspapers about the streets in the daytime, and played the tambourine and collected the pennies for an organ grinder at night. She was prosperous and full of ambition. She reveled in her gorgeous dreams, and dared to look forward to a day when she should rise to the dignity of peanuts and have a regular stand on the corner. This girl had a good deal of human nature about her. Straightened as her circumstances were, she kept a Sunday dress a dress that must have cost as much as three or four dollars years ago, when it was new. She took it down from a nail and showed it to us. She had had a waterfall once, she said, but the rats got it. There was considerable human nature in some of those small children, too. They got out some rusty rag dolls, wretched affairs with arms pulled out and features defaced, and bran oozing from their legs. They got these melancholy monstrosities out, and flourished them about where we could admire them, but pretending all the while that they had no such end in view, and were even unconscious that those dolls were in any respect proper objects of admiration. I have seen other children go through the same fraudulent performance with costlier playthings, pretending all the while that they were not courting notice and commendation. Ah, the want and suffering that we saw yesterday! We passed from the tenement house to a mansion uptown where one of our party had a call to make, and there we saw human misery in its saddest form. Here was a poor devil living in a vast brownstone front, whose income had suddenly come toppling down from six thousand a month to four. He was consequently in deep distress, and all that he said was touched with melancholy. Trouble never comes single-handed one of his finest horses had gone lame, and his most precious dog was very sick and like to die. His champagne and his sherry did not suit his taste, and his tailor was so slow with his work as to drive him to the verge of distraction sometimes. This heart bowed down by weight of woe wrought upon my sympathies as suffering never did before— and yet no man can fully appreciate misery like his until he has tried it unhappily i had never tried it and i was obliged to compassionate him only in a degree far inferior to the magnitude of his grief the ex clown suffered but i could not see that he suffered as much as this man but this distressing subject suggests a fact in this city with its scores of millionaires there are today a hundred thousand men out of employment. It is an item of threatening portent. Many apprehend bread riots, and certainly there is serious danger that they may occur. If this army of men had a leader, New York would be in an unenviable situation. It has been proposed in the legislature to appropriate five hundred thousand dollars to the relief of New York poor, but of course the thing is cried down by everybody the money would never get further than the pockets of a gang of thieving politicians they would represent the poor to the best of their ability and there the state's charity would stop new york is always bustling and lively but there are degrees in even its liveliness in that network of great business streets that occupies the section between broadway and the brooklyn ferries and the city hall and castle garden One may cross and recross the thoroughfares now, with hardly a fear of being run over, and may make a reasonable progress along pavements still crowded, but not crammed. But a year ago it was so different. To attempt to cross one of those streets then, with its long array of massed and struggling vehicles, was to take your life in your own hands, and to get anywhere on foot along the sidewalks necessitated an exasperating elbow fight for the whole distance you wished to go. They used to talk of dull times, then. What do you think of it now? Mark Twain Territorial Enterprise, February twenty seventh, 1868 Mark Twain's Letters from Washington Number 7 Washington, January thirtieth, eighteen 1868 More Westernism Sergeant Gilbert H. Bates of Wisconsin is the last candidate for pedestrian notoriety he has made a bet that he will walk alone unarmed without a cent in his pocket and bearing aloft the american flag through the late southern confederacy from vicksburg to washington he is already on his way and the telegraph is noting his progress the mayor and a large portion of the population of vicksburg ushered him out of that city with a grand demonstration he proposes to sell photographs of himself at twenty-five cents apiece all along his route, and convert the proceeds into a fund to be devoted to the aid and comfort of widows and orphans of soldiers who fought in the late war, irrespective of flag or politics. And then, I suppose, when he gets a good round sum together, for the widows and orphans, he will hang up his flag, and go and have a champagne blowout. I don't believe in people who collect money for benevolent purposes, and don't charge for it, I don't have full confidence in people who walk a thousand miles for the benefit of widows and orphans, and don't get a cent for it. I question the uprightness of people who peddle their own photographs anyhow, whether they carry flags or not. In my opinion, a man might as well start his name with an initial, and spell his middle name out, and hope to be virtuous.' but this fellow will get more black eyes down there among those unconstructed rebels than he can ever carry along with him without breaking his back. I expect to see him coming into Washington some day on one leg and with one eye out and an arm gone. He won't amount to more than an interesting relic by the time he gets here, and then he will have to hire out for a sign for the anatomical museum. Those fellows down there have no sentiment in them, They won't buy his picture. They will be more likely to take his scalp. Now the next ass that turns up will be wanting to carry a Confederate flag through the North, and wouldn't he have a cheerful time of it! What a pity it is that that insufferable fool, George Francis Train, did not think of that. He would have tried it in a minute, and got hanged, and it would have been a blessing to the country.'" it would have transferred that tiresome gab of his to the other world and from that time forward there never would have been any peace in hell any more when the english found what a poor clattering frog they had flattered with imprisonment they were ashamed of themselves and turned him loose and ever since then he has been squandering his substance in sending bombastic telegrams over here about his suing the british crown for pounds five hundred thousand money enough to buy a sane man with, and about his protesting officially against this, that, and the other thing, and about Darby, threatening boastfully, but trembling, at such a sputtering bladder of gas as train, and about his going to stump Ireland. Was there ever such a word of egotism stuffed into one carcass before? Surely there is no room left in him for bowels, do you know that that idiot is aspiring to the presidency of the united states he honestly is he said in a farewell speech on shipboard as he left new york a speech slobbering adulation and nauseating buncombe over half a dozen irishmen out of business that in due time he would be the people's president however the same god that made george francis train made also the mosquitoes and the rats and in his infinite wisdom he knows what he did it for. Human beings don't, though. Train established a newspaper in New York, The Revolution, to keep his notoriety alive while he wagged his ears in Europe. Last week in New York I saw six young girls walking up Broadway in single file, arrayed in showy uniform dresses of red merino, with white bodies, and on their heads they wore blue caps, red, white, and blue. Do you observe? and each girl had a belt about her waist with Revolution painted on it, and had also a bundle of Revolution newspapers under her arm. Isn't that absurdity just like Train? I suppose that paper will advocate female suffrage, free love, miscegenation, burglary, arson, spiritualism, Southern superiority, and general compounding with sin on earth and repudiation of damnation hereafter when they speak contemptuously of worthless fussy people in England, they call them baggage. They have applied this happy epithet to train. So our blowing, shrieking, ranting, lightning-express has degenerated into a poor, homely, inconsequential baggage-train, after all. Judge McCorkle They report that this homely old friend of mine, this ancient denizen of California, Nevada the wrinkled, aged, knock-kneed, ring-boned, and spavined old war-horse of the plains, is to be married shortly to a handsome young Ohio widow worth three hundred thousand dollars. Well, what is the world coming to, anyhow? If any man had told me a week ago that any woman in her right mind and under seventy would be willing to marry that old fossil, that old tunnel, that old dilapidated quartz mill— I would never, never have believed it! He is a splendid man, you know, but then he must be as much as ninety-two or ninety-three years old. He is one of my nearest personal friends, but what of that? I would remain a bachelor a century before I would marry such a rusty, used-up old arastra as he is. I have always considered that I ought to fairly expect to marry about seventeen thousand dollars, but I think differently now. If mr mccorkle ranges at three hundred thousand in the market, I will raise my bargain to about a million and a half. Impeachment. It is on hand again. Congress has said it is going to boss this government in spite of everything and everybody, and it is keeping its word. It has held its grip now for more than a month without ever flinching, and so it is forcing from the people that respect which pluck always inspires whether it be displayed by one man or a multitude it has never given up its impeachment scheme but foiled in one attempt it straightway essays another the new bill just introduced into the senate by mr edmonds of vermont proposes to get rid of the obnoxious president on easy terms it simply provides that when a civil officer is arraigned before the senate on articles of impeachment preferred by the house said officer shall be suspended from service pending the examination of his case. The examination of Mr. Johnson's case, so arraigned, would never take place at all. He would remain harmlessly suspended until his duly elected successor arrived at the White House on the 4th of next March. It is specified in the bill that the Army, if necessary, shall enforce such suspension no one can tell of course what this measure may result in but it is possible that through it congress may yet gain its point and tie the hands of the president harry worthington has been nominated for u s district judge for nebraska and henceforth will cease to decimate the indians with his short rations but he performed good service for his country while he remained in the indian feeding department of the government he started out to unfit a couple of tribes for the war-path and i think he must have done it for no man has ever heard of them since works like those are bound to receive their reward at the hands of a grateful nation he is a judge now or rather i trust he soon will be and can rest upon his indian laurels and grant injunctions and hang people it is good to be a judge The New York papers say Harry Worthington used to be a U.S. senator from California, but I guess that is a mistake, isn't it? But New York papers don't know everything. And speaking of Western people, I will mention that C. H. Webb, Inigo, arrived here for a short sojourn today. He is going to do up fashions and such matters for Harper's Bazaar and the Tribune, I hear. This town seems to me to be pretty well stocked with California newspaper men, and so is New York, and all at work, too, which is flattering, certainly, considering the number of idle pens there are. I am on the Tribune staff yet, and also on the regular staff of the New York Herald, and likewise that of the Chicago Republican. I think the boys are all satisfied with their Eastern positions and with Eastern pay, and I am sure ought to be. They treat us houseless strangers well in the East. Thomas Nast, the clever artist of Harper's Weekly, is exhibiting a collection of great caricatures of national subjects in New York, and wants me to do the lecturing for his show. I would, if I hadn't so many irons in the fire. I would like it right well for a change, but then changes are risky. I must hunt around for a handsome Pacific coaster to take the berth, because I suppose it is personal loveliness Nast is after. Mormonism Mr. Hooper, delegate from Utah, is to have the seat in the House of Representatives contested by Mr. McGrachty. The papers in the case cover the whole ground of the legality of the government of that territory as administered by the Mormons. This is said to furnish the first occasion for bringing the whole question of Mormon laws and authority properly before Congress. I suppose we may look for a general ventilation now of the happy civil and religious code which permits a man to marry a whole family grandmother and all if it is particularly fancy stock or if he can't make up his mind which of the ladies he likes best pardon Todd's has been nominated for the post of indian agent of utah that is the homeliest of all the homely puritan names i have stumbled on yet except that of famous praise god barebone how could a man write an obituary on pardon Todds if he died without making it intensely funny that man will never survive his mission the indians will put up with a good deal but they will never put up with an agent with a name like that toddy you are going to get scalped that is what is in store for you mark twain related item that mark twain wrote for the new york tribune on george francis train THE NEW YORK TRIBUNE, JANUARY twenty-second, 1868 INFORMATION WANTED To the editor of the Tribune. Sir, if you can, I wish you would give me some information of a man by the name of George Francis Train. It is for an uncle of mine that I want it. My uncle has had a pretty hard time of it, and if any man does deserve sympathy, and if any man would appreciate that sympathy, it is he. He is in the decline of life and he wants to be quiet, but you know he tried while Russia and the bears ousted him, and then he tried St. Thomas, and the earthquakes ousted him. And so he hung up his fiddle, so to speak, and concluded he would wait and look around a while, till the government bought some more property. And while he was waiting, somebody recommended him to hunt up this gentleman, Mr. Train. They said, Mr. Train was a slow, quiet sort of a body— and had no isms or curious notions about him, and that he was going over to the old country to buy Ireland for those persons they call the Fenians. They said he was very popular with the English government, and that if the English government would sell to anybody, they would to Mr. Train. They said that if Mr. Train concluded to take it, my uncle have an excellent chance to buy into a quiet locality in Cork or Tipperary, or one of those calm religious regions there, by speaking to him early. So my uncle went after Mr. Train, but he was building a couple of railroads out west somewhere, and before my uncle got there he had finished those railroads, and was making democratic speeches in the East. It was a considerable disappointment, but my uncle always had a great idea of doing business with a slow, quiet man, and so he came East— but he came the last part of the journey in a canal boat, it being his nature to prefer quiet and safety to speed, and so he missed that man again. Mr. Train had got the Democratic Party reorganized and all straight, and was out in the middle of the Rocky Mountains, clearing off a place and driving away the buffaloes, so that he could build a metropolis there. But my uncle went in an ox-wagon, and he missed that man again." mr train had finished that metropolis and paved it with the nicholson pavement and started a couple of daily newspapers and was gone east again with another lady to lecture on female suffrage it was a little discouraging but my relative rested about a week and started after him again he caught him this time because Mr. Train had sprained his ankle and was obliged to remain quiet until he could get the leg removed and a reliable patent wooden one put on in its place that could not sprain. So he mentioned his business to Mr. Train, and he replied, You are all right, sir. Put your trust in me. I'll buy Ireland, and you shall have as good a chance as any man. I am going to sail right away you will hear about me as soon as i touch the emerald shores i shall get out some advertisements and make my presence known i make no pretensions but you will see pretty soon that i shall be heartily welcomed there and promptly cared for since that time my uncle has not heard of mr train he has confidence in him but he thinks that maybe he is too quiet a man to make much of a stir and has not been heard of on that account but have you heard anything of mr train do you know if he got out any advertisements and do you know if they received him heartily there and more especially if they took care of him this last is the main thing with my relative if they took care of mr train it is all he cares for he has said to me repeatedly that all that he is afraid of is that he has been neglected and not taken care of If he were to hear that Mr. Train is there, in a strange land, without any place to stay, it would nearly break his heart. If you could only inform us that Mr. Train is safe, and has been received hospitably, and has a good tranquil place to board in, suitable to a quiet man like him, it would be a great comfort to the old man. Mark Twain End of Section 31